0: listener production. Okay, are you recording?
1: Welcome, one and all, to episode 130 of the Howie Games, part A, featuring a man whose journey has taken him from being a school teacher in Queensland to hosting and commentating massive sporting events for one of the biggest TV networks on the planet, Lee Diffie.
2: The soul is back at the speedway. The fans are back in the stands. This is and always will be the greatest spectacle in racing. As they come to green, this is the Indianapolis 500 for everybody to see.
1: So I was thinking about this. I don't want to roll out a bunch of old cliches for what Diff's achieved. See, this is how I see it. If someone turned Lee's story into a book and you picked it up and started reading it, you'd swear it was fiction. It couldn't be true. It couldn't be true. How could old mate from Queensland go from teaching to calling motorbike racing in the sticks to fronting up to call the single biggest event at the Olympics for the biggest network there? I'm telling you, Lee Diffy is one remarkable cat. Added to that, no-one has a bad word to say about Diff. He's inclusive, as I was fortunate enough to find out when I was making my way in TV. He is the life of the party, again, as I've seen many times, many times, especially post-Bathurst celebrations. And he is loose. Sit in a hire car with Diff anytime, anywhere. Watch him drive, listen to his stories or, and this is classic Diff, Feel your seat getting hotter and hotter in the middle of summer because Diff has flicked on the seat warmer button, thinks it's the funniest thing in the world when you look at him and you sweat pouring off you. That is classic Diffy. He is lovable.
0: So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seems like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try. Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes
1: Everybody has a Diff being kind to them type of story And he's brilliant at what he does As professional and engaging as I've had the pleasure to work with Lee Diffie is living proof that anything is possible If you set your mind to it Enjoy his story
0: So when you search and then you find And know just where to go Thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be revealed In King Selassie I, Come on children, trod with me We want to reach Mount Zionist
1: Welcome to the Howie Games, a man that has achieved an extraordinary amount of success in his career from humble beginnings, now a lead broadcaster in the United States of America, of all places, and a man I've been fortunate enough to work with along the way, the great Lee Diffy Diff, finally, welcome to the Howie Games, it is wonderful
2: to see you mate, how are you? I have walked around my hometown listening to episode after episode after episode of the Howie Games. I can't believe I'm finally here.
1: <laughs> Mate, uh, I appreciate that and I know you often text me saying you listen to this one or that one, so it's a great thrill for me to have you on. Where is your hometown?
2: I live in a little town called Ridgefield, Connecticut, which is um, well, It's about half an hour from NBC Sports uh, headquarters in Stamford, Connecticut. And we're about, by car, probably about an hour and 15, hour and 20 out of New York City.
1: Wow. You know, the first thing when I saw you this morning, it popped up and you've got a ride motorbike t-shirt on. You've got uh, Monaco, bikes, cars, all the pictures (laughs) in the background. And the first thing I thought to myself was, how lucky is this bloke that he works in his passion which it obviously is to you mate motorsport
2: do you wake up and think wow how good is this yeah i do absolutely every day and sometimes you know when work gets a little bit tough and and the, the schedule becomes a grind you know especially in the middle of the summer months here you got to tell yourself that you got to tell yourself you know um one of my bosses once said you know might be a long day but it's not a hard day a hard days working in the mines you <laughs> work in television i was like yeah that's right so no Absolutely. As the old saying goes, living the dream, for sure. And I'm, I'm glad glad to still be in the dream. There's so many things I want to talk about with you, more
1: about broadcasting the motorsport itself. But before we get to that and where it all started for you, recently announced by NBC, one of the biggest broadcasters on the planet, that Lee Diffie from Queensland, Australia, will be calling the track and field at the upcoming Tokyo Games. That Blew my mind.
2: Blows mine too. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a big, uh, it's a big responsibility, and I'm still, even though I've done track and field f- for for several years for the network, you know, I'm still I'm still wrapping my head around it really because it's a um, it's a big opportunity and for you know uh, as far as the big three as they say at the Olympics is gymnastics and swimming and track and field. So I know I've got a huge workload ahead in August.
1: It is an extraordinary achievement, and you've been to previous Olympics. You went to to Rio, uh, you went to Sochi, where I saw you very briefly, where you were the king of the bobsled and the luge. <laughs> but but athletics and track and field the, on an American broadcast is. I can't think of many bigger deals unless you start broadcasting the Super Bowl diff, which I'm not sure you've got in your wheelhouse just yet. That, that's the size <laughs> of what we're talking about here. Can you? I'm sure it, there was an inkling or they were moving you in a certain direction, but can you take me to the phone call or the meeting or the conversation or the Zoom where some bigwig from NBC said to you, righto, mate, we want you to call the athletics, including the men's and women's 100-metre final at the Olympic
2: Games? That, that happened... Um that happened last year obviously prior to the postponement yes um, but I you know you can say that you that you knew because certain producers and, and, and people in management are telling you that's that's why we've that's why we've got you over here we're steering you that way because I just I just spoke to this wonderful gentleman today Tom Hammond Tom had called track and field uh, at the Olympics uh, since 1992. Here they come down the track, Usain Bulls sprinting ahead, winning by daylight, and setting a world record,
1: 9.68, the wind is okay, new world record, how easy was
2: that? So you know, um, I'm, I'm coming in in his draft. Yes. <laughs> and I, I, le- I left him a big voicemail the other day, and I just said, "Hey Tom, I just want to let you know, um, you know, you, I don't think your shoes can ever be filled, but I'm honoured to be the one following you, and and I'm, it's not lost on me what this opportunity is or what it represents." Um, and so what they what the network did is uh, a little bit of throwing you in at the deep end, but also. Uh, really good nurturing and guiding. So I did track and field for them uh, several events way back in 2013. And then I had a few years away. And then I came back in, uh, I think maybe 17, 18, 18. I think I started doing track and field again. Yes. So, you know, I've done my reps and they, uh, they weren't just gonna let me go off and, and do my own thing. I, uh, I think maybe even more so than any motorsport that I've ever done, I would have to go in to work, into the headquarters and I would sit in, in a big room and I would sit with a uh, couple of the top people who, who handled the Olympics for NBC and that we would watch tape. And they'd hmm. be like, like that, I like that, I don't like that, stop doing that, that's really good. And I would have to go in for like you know quarterly meetings or you know whatever wow. it was, and so they uh, the attention to detail is, is is fascinating. And but they know that they they're not going to let uh, one of their big properties just be handled by somebody in their own way or their own style. It's you've you got to do it. You've got to you've got to infuse your own style into the NBC way, if that makes sense.
1: Mate, that's a, that is a great answer. I want to explore that a bit more because. That's something obviously we don't do here in Australia. You just sort of end up being thrown into most things. But, Diff, as a frequent listener to the show, you know the Pickle and the Penguin. You will know them well. <laughs> um, uh, Pickle's pretty direct with this one, but this is what she's got for you. You ready, big boy?
2: Yep. Hi, do Pickle here. Dad tells me that you're going to commentate on the 100 metres for NBC at the Olympics. Wow, that is so cool. I would love to do that only 10 seconds, so it's a pretty big deal. But Dad tells me you're the man for the job. But what I want to know is how much preparation do you have to do before the race and
0: how are you feeling about it?
2: Well, thanks, Pickle. It's lo- lovely to finally hear a question from you to me. <laughs> um, uh, I'm, feeling, uh, I'm feeling excited. Um, I feel a little bummed that I didn't get to commentate on Usain Bolt. It uh, yeah. would have been tremendous to be a part of the Bolt era. But then, you know, it's wide open. It's really wide open. So I'm excited about that. You are correct. It's 10 seconds or less. And uh, you've got to, um, it's taught me a skill uh, very different to any of the other kinds of racing that I've commentated that you've really got to be, I don't know, just it forces you to be really pinpoint with your eyes. Sometimes you don't get, sometimes you don't get a, a real handle on, who's where until you can see somebody jump, but then if the field levels, you know, they could be at the 30-meter mark before you've even got some kind of a handle on it. Um, The other interesting thing, Pickle, is that if you have a field where all of the athletes are similar sizes. Yes. (laughs) You know, you don't have a tall athlete like Usain Bolt, or you don't have a particularly short one, or whatever it might be, uh, that makes it extra challenging as well. So, but uh, thanks for your question. I'm excited. And um, yeah, it'll be over. It'll be over just like that.
1: It will. I'm fascinated by this as well, as was the daughter, as was my daughter. So you're going to Tokyo. So you've called a lot of athletics, as you pointed out. Will you call it off what you can see or will you call it off the monitor when you let's talk specifically about the the men's or women's 100 meter final that
2: was that's an interesting point because talking with Tom Hammond this morning Tom said uh, I used to use the binoculars for about the first 20 to 30 meters and then I would look at the monitor and and he said I did that just to see if I could identify one particular thing or not personally I call it off the monitor yep Okay. Uh, because if I find that I'm looking up and looking down, I, I don't want to get caught in the middle. And if you're doing that over 10 seconds, you know, you, you to me you're opening yourself up. So I think you, you've got to be an either-or person. You've got to just call it looking out. And then you. Uh, that's difficult too because where are you sitting in the stadium? Are you right on the line? Are you t- 10 metres back from the line? Are you... Mm. So, you know, I, I, I think just from a... From a uh, quality control perspective, I, I, I look at the monitor. Can we just delve into this a
1: bit more if it's all right, mate, because it, it fascinates me from a broadcasting perspective. So you'll have, like calling a motor race or uh, a lose race or a bobsled, there, there'll, be a, there'll be a technique to it, mm-hmm. and I'm sure you've discovered what the technique is and what your technique is going to be. So in the space of 10 seconds... What points are you trying to hit in the race? Like what is the structure of calling a
2: 100-meter race? Do you know what I mean? So so the structure, so I commentate with Addo Bolden, a uh, four-time Olympic medalist and cool. just a, a legend. He's, he's such a great guy. Still holds the Commonwealth Games 100-meter yep. record. Um, uh, actually, many many of Ado's greatest moments, uh, Bruce McEvaney called. Um, so uh, what Ado and I will do like a tag team before... Before they're in the blocks, yep. right? So they so say, "Here's here's Mark Howard, the thirty-year-old Australian, and he's done this and this and this." And Adder will say, "Do you know Lee? His training is later, and he'll do that." Like we'll do a little bump, bump, bump. We'll do a give and go all the way across the field, all the lane introductions. On the inside, very inside is Fred Curley in two, Kyrie King, Andrew Hudson. That's your full field. Noah Lyles is in five. When you come to the Olympic trials. You almost discard the paper you trust what your eyes are telling you and then in a 100 once they're in the blocks addo might have one closing statement or whatever front and center in the white top fastest man in the world in 2021 trayvon bromel but then as soon as the gun goes off that's all me all the way to the line i say the time Boom, Addo comes in. He's one of the most brilliant analysts, and then he starts just dissecting it, and he's like rapid fire. He's like a machine gun. He's incredible.
1: So in the, in the 100 metre itself, in the 10 seconds, is there a structure to that? Are you trying to identify all runners? No. Are you trying to say who's where? So tell me about the, the actual call of the
2: race. Well, you're looking, you're looking for who got a jump, right, who got yep. out of the blocks, and then you're looking for if that person gets out of the blocks and has a really good drive phase and then and and then they're up and out there if they're the clear leader who's coming with them and who was the pre-race favorite and are they in a are they in a position okay. of prominence or are they struggling a really good start from Brunel Johnny Baker's going with it and so you you try and throw in all of those ingredients within like you know within that 10 second frame and obviously you hope for a close finish or if it's not a close finish if it's a runaway winner then you you're gonna well either way you're gonna focus on the time aren't you everyone's intrigued about the 100 meter time so yeah there's all of these elements in the yeah. Yeah, elements in the in the pot uh, that all kind of happen very quickly on the outside my Williams Trayvon Rommel wins the men's hundred. He's off to his second Olympics. And if it is
1: tight, super tight, and I'm sure this has happened to you in your experience, and you're not 100% sure, right on the line, what what do you do, diff? Do you take a punt? Do you go with your gut? Do you delay it for that half a second till you see the timing monitor? How do you
2: play out a really tight finish? I, I think I've probably done a little bit of all of the above. Yeah. Okay. Everything you said. Yeah. You go with you. You go with your gut. Who you think you had it, but then you can say if you're unsure. I think you you need to be fair to the audience and say that that was close because that's what we would say if we were sitting at home watching. It's, right, tired, we? it's, tired, it's tight. It's tight. Yeah. It's tight. Who got it? Who got it? Like who got it? You know. You, you kind of. So you don't want to be disingenuous to the to the viewers. Um. So yeah. You kind of uh, a little a little bit of all of the above, and and you're going to know. You're going to know within a matter of seconds,
1: yep. you know, right? So, so diff the other side to it, obviously, to give our Australian audience uh, a, a greater understanding. I don't need an exact number; I need a general number of people that will be watching your call throughout the United States of America and its affiliates on NBC.
2: How many people will be watching your call? The race, do you reckon? Oh, that's tough, but I mean. Here's a, here's a somewhat of a yardstick, right? We had uh, we had the the peak the peak viewership uh, of the Indy 500 uh, a couple of weeks ago. We had uh, 7.1 million viewers Poor. watching the Indy 500. Right. So for the so for the final of the hundred meters, it's got to be somewhere between 20 to 30 million viewers. You would you would have it a guess?
1: Okay, and then it will be replayed in eternity once it's there. It's there. Yeah. Yeah. Then the obvious question is you have tremendous experience and confidence and belief. Do you take a mind, do you allow yourself to think, geez, what if I stumble? What if I get it wrong? And how do you (laughs) overcome that? Because that's a natural question for people that don't do the job. Like I've never caught 100 meter and I think, geez, if I got tied up on lane six's name on the 12 meter mark, I'm not recovering to the 75 meter mark. How do you deal with the the horrible spectre of failure and what do you do to self? Like, Is there a mental process like an athlete to put yourself in a good space? Because let's not beat around the bush, mate. This is, I can say it to you, this is a huge, huge moment in your broadcasting career.
2: Sure, sure. Um, I would just say my, my mental process is you don't let yourself, you don't let okay. yourself get in that position, you yep. know. Um, it's a great answer. Uh, the, last, the last one is that, you know, that we spoke about for sure. I've been in those close calls and you're like, ah, you know, which, which, you know, who is it? But that's different to getting the getting the winner completely wrong, you know, I, yeah. I think. Um, <laughs> I've had it a couple of times in, in motor racing yeah. where, where within the closing meters, the wind change, and I've got my big wind. That's totally different to a 100-metre thing. But, yeah. You know, it was, it was in some sports car racing, and it was like, you know, a tenth of a second. It was, like, it was like the closest finish ever in the series history. And Oh, some of my colleagues have had some great fun with me over the years. <laughs> They're like, do you remember who won that race? Do you remember who won that? <laughs> okay,
1: Diff, we, we got stuck <laughs> right into an area that I, I wasn't truly thinking we were going to, but... Part of this podcast is to show people you can come from anywhere and achieve anything, and your story summarises this as well as any athlete I've ever had on the show, and you're a pretty athletic bloke yourself. We both know that, Diff. Where did it start, mate? Tell me about your family background because you are not a silver spoon style operator by any stretch of the imagination.
2: No. I grew up in a a working-class suburb of Brisbane called Carroll Park, Um I don't believe it's called Carroll Park anymore because, uh, I guess the local authorities, I thought maybe it had a too much of a negative stigma to it, which makes me laugh. Um, but yeah, so very, very humble very, uh, upbringing lived in a pretty small house with my mum and dad, brother and sister, and one of my grandmothers. And, uh, Nan lived with us until we were 15. So pretty close confines. Um, one shower, one toilet, <laughs> uh, shared, bu- shared, uh, shared bedrooms. Um, but we, we, you know, it was a pretty good childhood, I thought. You know, we, we were always out kicking a footy or playing cricket and we, we had, we had uh, some, some push bikes and we had some motorcycles that, that we raced that I started racing from a young age. So, no, it was um, pretty, pretty humble. Mum and Dad uh, working class people. Dad was a painter and a sign writer and Mum was a teacher's aide. So, you know, I guess for our generation, pretty normal upbringing. When you were playing cricket in the backyard, who did you want to be? Um, I didn't necessarily want to be a, a, a batsman. I wanted to be Dennis Lilly. Of course, you did. Of yeah. course, you or, did. Or Tomo, or Tom o, Jeff Thompson. <laughs> we we actually we actually uh, one of our neighbourhood mates, Michael Cato. He used to be able to fling his fling his arm back like Tomo <laughs> and then give it a big big whooshka. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so um, obsession can be a positive and a negative. In this discussion, it's positive. When did your obsession with motorsport? begin and how did it begin? You, you mentioned you had motorbikes, which is not usual growing up uh, as no, a young
2: definitely, we, we were the odd bods in the neighborhood yeah. um, because because everyone, it was stick and ball sports, right? Everyone played either rugby league or, or, or cricket uh, or maybe rugby union. Um, rugby union certainly wasn't in our area or soccer, played soccer, right? So um, everybody knew in our neighborhood and especially with my mum working at the school that the Diffies were the motorbike people. <laughs> um, so I was introduced to it through my dad, um, my dad's father, he used to race bikes in Victoria and for whatever reason, he wouldn't let my dad do it. And so I think dad lived vicariously myself and my, through myself and my brother. And uh, so I first started racing at the local motorcycle club uh, called Trailblazers when I was six years old. And uh, that's in fact, where Daryl Beattie, our, our dear friend and, and colleague uh, that's where he started riding as well because Daryl's mum was my preschool teacher. Right. And so he, he won a motorbike off the Jackie Mac breakfast show and, uh, he used to ride <laughs> it in the local bush and the local industrial estate and the cops were always chasing him. So his parents came to my mum and dad and said, Hey, listen, where do you, where do you take your boys to ride? So they brought Daryl there and, and, uh, as soon as he got on a bike there, he was like off to the right, he was gone.
1: That's one of the great stories that he won his first motorbike. So you're obsessed with motorsport. Did you want to, is that what you wanted to be as a kid growing up? Did you want to race motorbikes or did you early on realise that blokes like Daryl were on, on another planet?
2: Yeah, I realised I realised I that that, that I, knew, I knew where I was. <laughs> I knew where my, my ability level was. No, I, I think, I mean, I loved, I, I liked doing it and it was fun, but um. I, uh, at one stage, I thought I was going to be a farmer. You know, I studied agriculture and animal husbandry at school. I went to <laughs> Corinda State High School in Brisbane. They had a, they had an ag and animal husbandry and horticulture specialty unit. Um, I thought I was going to do that. And then I took a different direction and I, I went to teachers college and I was doing anything and everything as, uh, I, I worked on a, a tomato farm and a grape farm, um, with a really good mate of mine, Nigel Grieve, who was, four years older than me, and uh, he went on to become a PE teacher, and when he was teaching PE, he went to work at a local gym, so I thought, well, I should do the same thing, because everything he does is pretty cool, so uh, I went I went and got some uh, additional training s- uh, certifications, and I started working at the gym that he worked at, and then uh, he worked at Ipswich Grammar School, and um, I was still working at the gym, I was do- I was being a chippy's labourer, this is after I graduated uni, because yeah. um, I wasn't ready to teach. And so I was doing everything. I worked at Warner Brothers Movie World on the Gold Coast. Uh, I had about three or four jobs at once, and then um, there was an opportunity to to work at Ipswich Grammar School as a, as a PE teacher. So uh, I kind of followed Nigel a lot, but, you know, I was in mm-hmm. his draft. Every, every move he made, I was about three or four years later.
1: You mentioned the gym. Now, often there's urban legends, and I know some of these urban legends because as we'll get to, we, we, we used to work together. And the first thing when I was introduced to, and I reckon it was Daryl Beattie, and who I didn't really know, or as Bill Woods said, you got to ask him about being an aerobics competitor. And I thought I I don't know this bloke, I can't ask him about. But you need to tell the good people because this is I know this is fact. This one,
2: it is fact. It is fact. Uh, I just did it for two years. So what the the gym I worked at was called Jindalee Lee All Sports, and. Uh, and i I, did, I started off just just working in the gym, then started doing some basics you know gym instruction, and then I used to do the circuits, which was really fun. I love doing the circuits because I could talk. And I didn't know it, but that was that that was actually additional training for my teaching and for my commentary because I was talking the whole time and I was talking to doctors and lawyers and nurses and different people and what did you do at the weekend? And I was and I'm there and I'm running the circuits, I'm looking at the clock and who's doing what and helping them. And so it was great on the spot communicative training uh in a way, as well as you know, just being around training all the time and being fit. And then then um my boss at the time he said, Listen, we want to enter some people um, in the Reebok Australian Aerobics Championships. Yes, and, uh, yes. He goes. Dear. I want to see. I want to see if you. I want to see if you've got any rhythm. Have you ever done aerobics? <laughs> I was like, I've never done aerobics. <laughs> so anyway, he made me do the aerobics class the next day, and he stood up the back and watched me just be a participant. He's like, "Yep, you'll do," because he was an Australian aerobics champion himself. Of course, he He's was. Like, you'll do, uh, and we're going to put you with the owner's daughter. And uh, and you're going to do mixed doubles, and I'll train you. Doesn't matter if you don't know what you're doing. I'll just train you to a routine, and off we go. So I did I did it I did that in the uh, when was that in the early 90s? Yeah, full so lycra type uh, setup. Oh yeah, mate. Yeah, fully embarrassing. You'll never see the pictures.
1: Like an all-in onesie or a tight pant, or what were you going with,
2: did you? It was all <laughs> of the above, Howie. <laughs> that was
1: all of the above. What was your favourite colour of leotard?
2: Uh, I, don't <laughs> I don't know. I can we're, going, see, we're going over rocky ground here. I can see you want to move on, mate. I said
1: to you at the start, as I did to every guest, if anything comes up that you want to cut out, tell me we'll cut it out. I pray you don't text me tomorrow and say, can we cut out that aerobic no, stuff? No, 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 I won't do that. A quick break from Diff. Next up on the show, we are going, what about this? World-class, international athlete style with one of the most famous names in extreme sports, triple Olympic gold medalist, Sean White. Hmm, Sean White. Now, like many successful people, Sean has been
0: faced with doubters throughout his journey. I really took it as a win for all of us, and... um so many parent-teacher conferences or sort of people saying your kid's going to be nothing or, you know, you'll never make it. And like, what is snowboarding huh. anyways? Like w- we might as well have been like, oh, we're going to be professional yo-yo. <laughs> I- I'm sorry to the yo the yoers out there. Um I do appreciate your skills because I am terrible at it. That's why it's, it's it's actually something I wish I was better at, but <laughs> you know, like uh, sword fighting or something, I don't know, something random and, yeah. and, uh, or, or, you know, f- yeah. And it just, it just, we had done it at that point, every, every bit of, uh, uh effort along the way and the, the hardship of it all. And, and, you know, my, my parents had like taken a loan on their house to help me pay for this whole thing. And it all had been worth it for this moment. And, um, and so that was wild. And then after that, it just pushed me to this level of Uh, recognition and success that I'd never really known. You know, I was on the cover of Rolling Stone and um, when it came out, there's a little blurb about, you know, how there's only two other athletes to ever be on the cover of Rolling Stone. And that was Muhammad Ali and Michael, Michael Jordan. Wow. And so I was like, and now me, like, (laughs) you know what I mean? It was, it was wild. And so every Everything that was happening at that point was was pretty, you know, um, uncharted terrain, and um, and it was it was wild.
1: Absolutely pumped to have Sean White next up on the show. On we go with Diff. So, mate, you're working as a school teacher, and uh, you're making uh, a bit of a name for yourself on the side as a professional aerobics uh, competitor. When did you first? What was the first thing? you ever commentated on? When were you first given a microphone by someone and how
2: and told talk about this? I think I was 20. I was 20 years old, so I was still still at uni. And it was the local motorcycle club, it was the Ipswich Motorcycle Club. uh, And they wanted somebody to do their just PA, their public address. And um, they said, now, listen, young fella, we'll be able to pay you too. You can get $60. We'll pay you $60. And I think I called about 95 races that day. <laughs> uh, now, they was short. They were short. They were like four lap races. But um, it was a long day sitting in a wooden tower in, in Tivoli Raceway, you know, outside of Ipswich. And uh, the lap scoring ladies were behind me and I was just sitting out on the front uh, kind of uh, porch area, perch area, and I had a, an old transistor radio and a microphone and, you know, someone would bring me some water or a can of Coke or something and I'd commentate. And then in between races, when I wanted to rest, I'd just turn the radio on and put the microphone next to the radio <laughs> and that'd go out on the speakers. Oh, DJ Diff, And then uh, DJ Diff, that was that was how it all started, yeah.
1: <laughs> so um, we, we, we don't have time to progress all the way to the Men's Olympic 100 final in, in step by step. How did you give me a brief summary of how you ended up from being a school teacher who was uh calling some races on a weekend for 60 bucks to getting offered a position at
2: Network 10 which is where our stories meet but further down the track So I was living in Brisbane and 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 doing a bunch of all these other things that I was telling you about it, including school teaching and then the 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 race commentary opportunities just kind of grew um you know that was in that was in Ipswich in Queensland and the guy Glenn Kraus who was at the uh, track in Toowoomba called Echo Valley, which is where Will Power, oh. Australia's first Indy 500, went out. That's where he started out of as well. Course. He's like, oh, we've got a job for you. And then there were some people that were in Ballina in New South Wales. They said, oh, we, we heard you up in Toowoomba. Would you like to come down? And it just kind of grew like that. Um Supercross in Australia, Phil Christensen at Supercross was a huge opportunity for me. It was like a step up from the local tracks to working at Rod Laver Arena and Sydney Entertainment Centre and Brisbane Entertainment Centre. And then uh, I started to do more traveling. I'd, I'd come to Sydney's Oran Park, just still again PA, and that's where I work with Greg Rust. Hmm. Uh, I used to, I used to, I used to stay the Sunday night and uh, at his mum and dad's house in in Sydney, and I'd sleep in a spare bed and then get up and get the first flight back to Brisbane to try and go back to school <laughs> to try and make an 8 30 wow. assembly, you know, back at school, and um, it just kind of kept going like that, and then. Um, in in 1996 and in 95, 96, I'd only taught for um, two and a half years and I just said to mum and dad, got to, you know, I'm, I'm losing jobs because I live in Brisbane, I've got to get to Sydney, I've got to try and make this happen. And um, so they supported me the best they could. I moved in uh, to a room in Alexandria in Sydney's inner west and, again, did substitute school teaching and a bunch of things. And then an opportunity came up through Paul Morris and his dad to commentate at the... Um, the Super Tourers, which wasn't—they were the two-liter Super Tourers, not not yep. V8 supercars. That was the rival then, and the, um, the owner and I bug people all the time about: can I do this? Can I do that? And I, can I show you my show reel? Which I don't really have one, but I'll—you know—I just used to hammer people all the time, and they said, "Yeah, we've got an opportunity for you to come to Lakeside Raceway in Brisbane to do to do the like you know, to do some interviews." And I said, "Oh, that they they think thought I still lived in Brisbane." And they said, uh, "So we'd like you to come," and I said, "Okay, well I live in Sydney." I was like, oh. Oh. So anyway, I went and I got that opportunity and uh, they were looking for a commentator, not a pit reporter per se, and I convinced them that I could do it and uh, they made me go into an edit suite in Sydney in a post-production house. They cut five minutes and they made me just commentate it in the edit suite. And then the the bosses said, yep, you'll do. And uh, that was broadcast on 10, but I wasn't working for Channel 10. And um, just as the year went on, uh, I got to meet the then head of sport, Mike Sent, and he mm-hmm. said, "Listen, he said, um, he said, you need you need to uh, you need to get into TV more. You need to learn TV more." He goes, "How about how about I uh, talk to Craig Reynolds at Sports Tonight and get you a freelance job at Sports Tonight?" And I was thinking, "Holy shit, I can't even type. How am I <laughs> going to be in one of Australia's biggest newsrooms?" And I was like, "Yes, that'd be great. Yes, yes, that'd be great. <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> I can do that." Tonight, will the Bulldogs bite the Saints in AFL Underlights? In Night Rugby League, Storm over Parramatta. And uh, so, you know, that that happened. And uh, I was doing... I I took every shift that I could get that they gave me. And, uh, you know, like you did, mate, you'd be sitting... In front of a in front of a monitor with a tape machine logging Sheffield Shield cricket matches yeah. or logging NBA matches from the I did I took every shift I could get I worked Christmas Day I worked New Year's Day I worked Easter I worked I never said no and uh, towards the end of 1996 Mike Odent came to me and and he said Hey listen we've got a big opportunity for you we've got uh, what was to become V8 Supercars it was still called the Australian Touring Car Championship then. And he said, we want you to be the host of it and you're going to work alongside Barry Sheen and Mark Osler. <laughs> and I was like, I nearly, I nearly was physically sick on his desk, you know, because that to me was like unachievable heights of television, you know, for, from where I came from. And so, um, yeah, and it just kind of spun forward from there. All right, the revs rise, get ready. This is race two of three. Lowndes on the inside, scape from the outside. Will he enforce Get a good jump. Away we Whoa, go. God, and Lowndes popped them down. Look. It does. Uh, bright,
1: bright, bright,
0: bright. yeah. And Stephen Richards, the outside.
2: Oh, that was a bright spot. Oh, star. No, Boy, no. look at this. that. that oh, no. He's He's cars. That's no. good. Who's got an ACC Craig Lowndes. Oh, oh, my God, goodness, mate. That's me. a nasty. Oh, well. Craig whoa. Lowndes, car one, our championship leader. You could see
0: there was a contact
2: there between two cars. It set off a chain reaction. So, mate,
1: people will struggle to understand in the world of TV, that you, which is very different to what you described happening at NBC and, and coaching you through calling athletics. But in Australian TV, from your experience and my experience, there is no real teaching. You just pick it up as you go. So how were you learning? What were you basing your commentary and your presenting on? Or was it just... You know just what
2: just, well I done, I' done enough, I'd done not enough. I'd done plenty of of laps and t- plenty of reps out in the middle of nowhere, just calling races. So I was confident in my race calling ability. What I didn't know and what I needed to learn was television. Yeah. So if you wanted me to call a race, you, I could have called a dog race down the street, but it didn't matter. I was confident that I could call a race. Purely because of the of the you know hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of races that I'd called out in, you know, in and around country Australia, um, and, and metropolitan areas as well. But I needed to learn, so I would sit in this in this little house where I was renting a room in Alexandria, and I'd get the VHS machine and I'd tape Sports Tonight and the Five O'clock News every night, and I'd watch people like Tony Peters and huh. whoever you know, Leanne West and Billy Woods and Matty White, whoever was doing the, the yarns, and. Like you said, no one teaches you this, right? So I'd say, okay, they speak for a bit and then somebody gets interviewed. They speak for a bit more, then somebody gets interviewed again. I love it. And they speak. And so I kind of just learnt, like, like, okay, there's a pattern. Oh, this one started with somebody speaking. Then there was the voiceover. And so I'd write down all these different patterns from the different stories to try and figure out how how to do it, like how to, you know.
1: This is where your story gets for what I find really interesting, mate, because you were then flying. You were The V8s had never been bigger in Australia. You guys were an unbelievable commentary team with Mark Osler, Barry Sheen, uh, Rusty, then Daz eventually got involved. And then you did what I'm now going to call from here on in a Scotty McLaughlin. You said, I- I'm now a big fish here, but I'm prepared to – Chuck that all in and I'm going to go to England and go again and be a small fish in a big pond, which not many people do. What was the thought process behind that, mate? How was it received at 10? And why did you not just stick with what you're doing? Because if you had, you'd still be calling V8s now and you'd be one of the most recognisable people on Australian television.
2: Um, I just, I, I went to Le Mans in France, the 24 hours of Le Mans, in 1998 and 1999, and it was... To do a, a documentary on the twenty-four hours um, with a dear friend called Tim Jardine, and uh, it was on ten, and I happened to be there with a dear friend and a, a broadcaster and a great businessman from Australia, John Smales. And we're standing in the pit lane at Le Mans, and he says, "What do you think about all this, diff?" I said, "Oh, it's unbelievable! Like, I can't believe I'm back here again, and this the track and the stadium." He goes, "No, no, 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 not that." He goes, "You being here." And I said, what do you mean? He goes, you working in the Northern Hemisphere. He goes, you can do this. You could be here. And I was like, wow. And so that kind of got the thought process going. And I'd met a guy called Andrew Marriott. And and he said, listen, if you come over, if you come to London, I can't give you a full-time job, but I could give you some voiceover week at work on a Friday morning. It might be enough for you to pay the rent. And I was like, you know what? That... Combined with my drive to do Formula One, I wanted to. I left Australia to. <laughs> it's it's going to sound like pie in the sky stuff now, um, but I I was so driven then, and I was so I wasn't going to stop at anything. I was I in my mind I was going to replace Murray Walker when Murray retired from Formula One, and so that was my that was that was target number one. And so I even rang Bernie Eccleston from my home in, in, uh, in Ermington in Sydney. I was well, you there. rang him. Bernie. I rang, I cold called Bernie and, and, uh, <laughs> I got his secretary and, and she was like, um, yeah, sorry, who are you? And I said, uh, I'm Lee Diffie <laughs> from Channel 10 Australia. I want to talk to Mr. Eccleston about, about Formula One. Oh, okay. So at about, you know, whatever it was, two in the morning, that next one, he called me back. And, and she no. said, "Mr. well, Mr Eccleston's Eccleston ready to talk to you now. And I said, oh, hi. I said, this is who I am and this is what I'd like to do and this is what I've so, done and this is what I've, you know. So you told him that you wanted to call Formula One yeah. on the phone? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Diff, that's outstanding. <laughs> yeah. That is real and, big uh, nuts material. And... Um, <laughs> He's like, well, that's really good. It sounds exciting. Uh, this is the person that you need to call. Da, da, da. And I did it again. I did it again several months later and he called back again. So really? I spoke to him twice. Yeah. From the same bedroom phone in Sydney and, um, say, you know, say what you like about Bernie. He, uh, for me, I thought that was awesome and, and he gave me some extra little motivation. So, um, anyway I, I annoyed I annoyed not only Bernie Eccleston but I annoyed Andrew Marriott uh, all the way up and from that from that June in Lamont uh, in the January of the very next year so from from June 1999 to January of 2000 I'd, I'd packed up and moved to London
1: diff as you know my first job was working for Bernie Eccleston in saying in the same way now that if I work for Fox, I work for Rupert Murdoch. So it's not like I'm seeing him in the office every day, but I just remember walking again out of the loo one day, we talked about Robert Redford in the player profile, out of the loo one day, I'd never met him. And he just looked at me, he's obviously a little chap. And he said, and what do you do here? And I gave him a brief rundown. He said, righto, am I paying you the right amount? And I was like, I think so. And he said, well, whatever you do, Do it well, son. And off he walked. I was like, okay, should I have asked for a pay rise in that situation? I I was never quite sure. So, mate, you you, you went to England and this is a theme with what you've done. Did you ever have doubt and think I'm throwing away a tremendous opportunity, which is I'm sure what Channel 10 told you at the time. It probably... Oh, Mike Odson, you mentioned, and 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 uh, our former boss and, and great man David White. Did they say to you, "Gee, you are throwing away a bit here," or not? Oh, big time! Yeah, yeah, yeah it I didn't. Bet
2: they uh, did. uh, it didn't. It didn't go down well. And even a guy who had a big influence in your career in Australia, um, uh, Murray Lomax. Yes, the great uh, Murray. Yeah, there was David. There was Mike Odson. There was Murray Lomax. There was Scott Young. And um, yeah, they they gave me a full court press. Basically, what, what are you doing? You know, what, you don't even have a job to go to. What? You don't don't throw this away because the door might not be open if you want to come back. You know. So, um, but I couldn't. I, I, I couldn't, and I, I'm not trying to make this sound more dramatic than what it was. But I couldn't have doubts, and I couldn't. I couldn't look back because it wasn't one of those situations where you could be half arsed You're either all in or all out, and so I was all in, um, and went to London. Uh, stayed stayed in people's you know spare bedrooms. I, I was married at the time, my first wife. Um, you know she she was a trooper about it. She was like yep, let's go get them and um, uh, mm. you know stayed in people's bedrooms for a little while, borrowed cars. and then within you know we had we, <laughs> the money money was running out by the time we rented a place ourselves to live. and um, within a matter of weeks of being there, um, I got a call from the BBC um which which Barry Sheen, uh had had been working the back corridors hmm. you know uh to get me on the world superbike championship and i landed that was you know that was my first big job overseas where and within <laughs> within within a very short period of time i was on a plane and i was i was off to South Africa, and funnily enough, one of the first jobs I ever did was back at back at Phillip Island in Australia. Oh, what you it's so cool I would have been, of course. I'd moved all the way to London, <laughs> they sent me all the way back to Australia. <laughs> the Go Show has come to town, and Govan wins race one at Phillip Island, his first since
0: 1996.
1: So, from from memory, yeah, To to cut a long story short, as the saying goes, with Craig Johnson on his episode. Did you? I think you got really close in a short period of time to that Formula One dream, didn't you? Did you get right down when when Murray was transitioning out? Have I got that right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they were doing so. I was I was working at the BBC in 2000, 2001, and two thousand and two was going to be the year that Murray. So during two thousand and one, they were doing some some trial things where James Allen, who was part of the, the then ITV um, uh, 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 pit crew he was part of the pit reporting crew, or he was the pit reporter, Uh, they would bring him in and, and, you know, when Murray would say, Murray would pick some races, maybe some long-haul races that he didn't want to go to, too far to travel or whatever, and so they'd try James Allen in there and then they would try Ben Edwards in there as well. And um, anyway, the final three... uh, uh, at ITV, like who's going to replace Murray? It was James Allen, Ben Edwards, and myself. I got a oh. call up, and um, I had to go and see a gentleman called Brian Barwick. And and again, you know, maybe for for you know, you do a wonderful job of motivating people on this podcast, particularly young people. Um, you know about we say have a go and don't take no for an answer, and always treasure, uh, really ch- uh, treasure and cherish your contacts because. It was my producer at the BBC who helped me get in front of Brian Barwick and, and a, a letter justifying why I should be considered because uh, his name is Mark Wilkin. Mark was was the former BBC Formula One producer and he produced Murray Walker and James mm. Hunt. And so, you know, it's, if you can prove your, your work ethic and your skills in front of other people, you don't know who those people know. And so um, that worked out pretty well and it was a, it was. It, was, it wasn't hilarious, it was quite intimidating when I finally got that meeting and had to go in because Brian Bargott w- wasn't messing around when I got to ITV headquarters and it was kind of one of those classic sit back on the, on the, uh, in your chair and put your feet up on the desk. And he was like, "Why the hell? Tell me, tell me why the hell I should replace Murray Walker with you. And Senna sprints away, but Alain Prost takes the lead.
1: It's happened. Alain Prost has taken the centre is trying to go through on the inside and it's happened immediately. This is amazing. Center goes off at the first corner. But what has happened to Frost? He has gone off too. Well, that is amazing,
2: but I fear absolutely predictable. And I think, you know, my voice was going, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, well, sir.
1: <laughs> so it, it, it didn't go your way. And like anyone's journey, and that's the great thing about this show, we often show that to have success you have to have failure. That's not failure, but, mate, it, at that stage as a bloke that grew up as a teacher in a short period of time to have the opportunity to broadcast Formula One to the world because ITV for the world feed, so that we would have heard you here in Australia, when you get that phone call diff or that email whatever it is, to say, sorry, you haven't got the job, is that just, ah oh, well, I was a long shot or is that, a, like how do you get on with, geez I was within two other blokes of achieving my absolute
2: dream. geez you're close to it. You're bloody close R- to it Really there. close. And, and what I like now, many years later, is that the three of us, um, uh, Ben Edwards, James Allen, myself, we're all mates, we all get on, and we all got eventually what we wanted, right? Yes. So James got the job at ITV, Ben ended up getting the job at the BBC when F one went there, and I ended up calling Formula One for NBC here. So it was kind of it was kind of cool. So I thought, well, you know, I, I, I can't get the Formula One job. What's the next next best thing? Is is IndyCar. And so I had some I had some contacts there and um, Work, you know. I say, I say to your young listeners, cherish your contacts because I used to get free clothes from No Fear, and my <laughs> friends who ran my my, fr- my friends who ran the No Fear office in London, they had a they had an American friend of theirs called Jim Hancock who used to do all of this marketing and stuff with Cart, and was like this with the Cart CEO, and they had arranged for me just to meet Jim to have a beer in London this one afternoon and he's like, so tell me what's going on? I say, oh, I missed out on the Formula 1 job. I wouldn't mind going to America to uh, to do IndyCar. He goes, stand by. Picks up the phone and he rings the CEO of Car and he says, I'm sitting here with this young guy. This is you know, This is what he does. Do you know Formula 1 wants him? Why doesn't <laughs> IndyCar want him? And he goes, Okay, okay, okay. So he goes, let's go to the pub. He goes, I think we'll get a call. So we weren't even to the pub yet, and I get a call from this guy called Don Helms. He's like, Lee, it's Don Helms at CART. We'd like to make you an offer to come to America. I was like, let's go and have a beer. Wow.
1: (laughs) That is the end of Lee Diffie Part A. We are only just warming up, so see you for Part B.
2: now.